Hi guys, this is Doug. Welcome back to What's the Hazard. It is Friday, April 23rd here in Omaha, Nebraska, 10 a.m. or approximately 10 a.m. So good morning, everyone. I hope you're having a great week. I hope this is the conclusion of a good week, that your people are safe and everything went well this week. So um, best wishes to everybody. Uh, before we get started, I need to thank my sponsors, Fallowich Construction Services, CCS Group, and the Nebraska Department of Labor On-Site Consultation Group. Guys, I couldn't be doing this without you, so thank you very much for your support. One observation for the week, I, um, I, I had to turn in my lease. I have a leased vehicle, which was a mistake. I drive about 60,000 miles a year. Come to find out that is a problem with the lease. When I turned my last one in, I was over by about 42,000 miles, and the penalty was just ridiculous. So, um, you know. so anyway, I turned my lease in. I got a similar vehicle. I drive a small little economic vehicle. And this new vehicle has this thing, Sasha, I'm not sure. It's called XM Radio. Have you heard of this? They actually beam from a satellite music into my car. I've been listening to AM radio all across Nebraska for the last 10 years because I couldn't get a station and now I have this music, and so, of course, as an old, you know, 62-year-old white guy living in Nebraska, I listen to the classic vinyl station, you know, listening to the old, good old rock and roll stuff. And on the drive over this morning, they played Todd Rundgren, who is my favorite. I've never heard him on, a, like, a normal radio station, so I knew it was going to be a good day, Eric, um, when I heard Todd Rundgren on the radio. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm anticipating great things today. Um, I'm going to get right to it. My guest today is Eric Kahn of Kahn Maciel Carey, a law firm, I think, headquartered in the D.C. area with offices throughout the country. Um, Eric, first of all, thank you for joining me, man. I know you were incredibly busy. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, this is great. This is great. And I want to say, first of all, you know, we met actually a few years ago. We did a program together with the National Grain and Feed Association, and you and I discussed OSHA inspections. We did some mock inspection scenarios that I thought went really well. I, I thought they were useful. Hopefully they were well-received, but I thought it went really well. I've got to tell you, um, I spent almost 20 years with OSHA, and I learned more about the legal aspects of OSHA from listening to you or listening to my other attorney friends. You know, it is, it is um, unfortunate, perhaps, that that the employees of OSHA, particularly the, the front line, the field folks, you know, the guys out in the field, the inspectors, the assistant directors, uh, we, they get a little bit of legal aspects training, you know, a minimal amount of training, but they don't really understand the nuances of administrative law or regulatory enforcement law types of things. And so that presents certain challenges to the employers, obviously, if the, if the OSHA person doesn't really understand some of those things. And so... That's where you come in. I think to some degree, you and your firm do, at least to some extent, OSHA law. You, you, you are involved in OSHA issues. And you guys, uh, I want to thank you for everybody that's reading it. You guys put out an incredible newsletter, and you have a great OSHA webinar series. I, I participate in those as well as read the newsletter. I look forward to the newsletter because it's about the only place that I can go to get good, accurate information and, and have a better understanding of what's coming. So, Thank you for doing that, first of all. And uh, if you're not listening or reading, um, you know, the, the newsletter from Con Maciel, or if you're not watching the webinars, you need to do that. I get mine through LinkedIn, and it is fantastic. So thank you for doing that. 
Um, well, I, I appreciate you saying that, Doug. It's usually it's just my mom that's telling me how great the <laughs> right. is. So I, I love hearing it from somebody else. Thank well, likewise, my mom is the only viewer of this uh, podcast, so <laughs> I, I, I certainly understand what you're saying. But no, I man, it is really good. It is great information. And I do appreciate it because it, uh, it helps me. I actually plagiarize it shamelessly, of course. So uh, it's good stuff. So if you wouldn't mind, um, you know, tell everybody just a little bit about the firm and how you got into this. I know you do things other than OSHA work, but how you found yourselves doing that. And then what is, what is, what is your vision of what you do and your mission? What is it that you are trying to accomplish Sure. Yeah. So, so actually I don't do anything, but OSHA, our firm does a little bit more. We, we are a labor and employment and OSHA firm, but I am a true OSHA specialist. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a nice way of saying, I only know how to do one thing. (laughs) And I have now for 21 years practiced exclusively in the field of workplace safety and health law. And my first decade or so of that, I practiced alongside the first general counsel of the OSH review commission uh, he was an incredible mentor, uh, a, because he was a great mentor, but also because of the experience that he had basically from the birth of the agency right. there, uh, at the OSH review commission, writing the first decisions about how these regulations that OSHA enforces are intended to be interpreted. Um, and he just knew everybody in, in the field. And, uh, it was an extremely uh, highly regarded man. That was Bob Gumbar. Mm-hmm. Uh, great mentor to me. Um, and I practiced with him for a long time until he retired from the practice of law. And, uh, and he encouraged me to, to find the right platform to, to be sort of a soup to nuts OSHA lawyer. We were at, you know, one of these huge law firms where the rates were just out of control for an OSHA practice, right? Mm-hmm. A typical OSHA enforcement action might be thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000. And it was just impossible for employers to comfortably pick up the phone and say, at your crazy big law firm rates, come help me with this $30,000 enforcement action. So I made a move to a a, a bigger regional um, uh, employment firm that wasn't doing any OSHA work, built up an incredible team there. Truly, I think that the best team of OSHA specialists in the country, and we realized that that was a good move. We were able to cut our rates and be more accessible to our clients, but we could go even further. And about six and a half years ago, we launched Conmacio Carey. Uh, essentially as an OSHA specialty firm. Uh, we, we do some labor and employment work, some of our colleagues, but we have a, a deep bench now about 14 attorneys that do either all or essentially all of their practice is workplace safety and health specialty work. Uh, we are based out of Washington, D.C., as you say, so we can go knock on the door of the Francis Perkins building mm-hmm. in the National Office of OSHA and talk about major policy issues or really significant matters we have offices all over the country now. We're in California and Chicago, um, Columbus, Ohio, Atlanta, Georgia, D.C. We're doing a lot of work in Texas right now. We would have unhappily announced the launch of our Houston office, but for this pandemic. Mm-hmm. So look sure. for that news uh, coming soon. Good. Uh, and, and we really do uh, provide this, uh, you know, uh, OSHA defense, sort of reactive work when there's incidents, accidents, investigations. Uh, and, and enforcement actions, obviously, full range of litigation um, to defend OSHA citations uh, directly at the ALJ level on appeal to the Review Commission and on appeal out to the federal circuit courts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also provide you know, proactive uh, OSHA services, a lot like you do. Uh, in, in fact, most of what we do on, on that proactive side is with folks like you, Doug. We, you know, it, it's maybe still too expensive to have us do an audit but we could collaborate with a really smart safety consultant to do an audit protected under attorney client privilege 
with the eyes of uh, of a legal professional mm-hmm. and catching some you know some issues that maybe the consultant thinks about differently than the lawyer and we make a great pair doing those sort of things so we do program development gap assessments safety and health audits um you know soup to nuts osha practice mm-hmm. But I would say with a heavier focus on the sort of reactive side, we help when OSHA comes knocking on the door right. or some terrible event has occurred and, and work with employers through that entire process, including, uh, unfortunately, more and more these days, uh, potential criminal uh, investigations and prosecutions, yeah. not just dealing with OSHA, but dealing with the Department of Justice or state uh, level prosecutors. So I'd say what we do is soup to nuts, Workplace safety and health uh, mm-hmm. advice and counsel and defense. That's fantastic, and and I I know you are. I recognize you as one of the premier firms doing that work, if not the premier firm, and at least in my experience, um, you are an advocate. You mentioned that as you said uh, earlier, and I know you do work on behalf of a number of these um, the larger organizations, not just individual employers necessarily, but you are advocating right. on behalf of like. National Grain and Feed, for example, was one that I'm familiar with, and other groups like that. Probably, I know the when I was with OSHA, you know, the scourge was we referred to like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the <laughs> National Association of Manufacturers. Those were the folks that were always challenging OSHA regulatory uh, moves and things of that nature. Which, you know, a check and balance is absolutely critical to keeping the this relationship, this dynamic in balance and it, and it has a tendency to get out of balance from time to time. Um, I see that you guys, you're doing a lot of stuff with regard to COVID. You publish a lot of information right. and I know you're monitoring closely the emergency temporary standards from the feds and yeah. the stuff that's going on in the state plans that have implemented yeah. these standards. Can you give us just a little, uh, a quick, I know that's probably impossible, but a quick overview of what's going on right now and what you expect to see? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it, it, you know, I used to think I was an extremely specialized attorney that I just did OSHA over the last year. I've become even more specialized, right? I'm a COVID-19 OSHA. There's <laughs> just been, and it's been everybody's experience, right? It has been an all-consuming and, and relentless uh, experience this last, this last year. And I think, you know, it, it is, it affects sort of all aspects of our lives, but there's no doubt it is a workplace crisis. Mm-hmm. So it's been an appropriate place for you know OSHA to invest a lot of resources and time, and for the state plans to invest a lot of resources and time. And that's where, you know, of course that that means that's where we've had to spend a lot of time uh, as well. And we've done that, like you said, with um, uh, with some of these larger organizations. We we've built uh, coalitions, a series of coalitions over the course of the last year of employers and trade groups to help. Um, you know, work with the various agencies, the various regulators in this space uh, to come up with good policy, good effective regulations, um, and to make sure that the agencies are hearing from industry who learned an awful lot about this, right? There's the scientific community, there's the regulatory community, and there's the regulated community. And the regulated community learned a lot of lessons about how to effectively manage this crisis over the last uh, 15 months or so. And we've we've organized, you know, those voices to be able to to connect with OSHA, to connect with Cal OSHA, uh, to connect with uh, the, the White House and the Office of Management and Budget uh, to talk about, hey, if you're going to implement a COVID-19 emergency temporary standard, make sure that you listen to the lessons that we've learned and build a standard that's going to work. Right. We all want to get past this crisis. So let's build a regulation that is going to be effective 
at actually uh, combating the spread of the virus in the workplace, but also one that's reasonable and manageable. And we've we've seen, you know, kind of the, the few sides of that coin, right? Yes. California had a rule that was very, uh, has been very onerous, uh, has been very expensive for employers to implement, but doesn't seem to be all that much more effective or more effective at all than, say, the rule that Virginia OSHA promulgated, both with the same goal of reducing spread of COVID in the workplace. So let's see if we can learn some lessons from the different states that have implemented a plan uh, for what, what Fed OSHA is developing. So we put together this group. It's the Employers COVID-19 Prevention Coalition. And we've been working with OSHA um, uh, on the emergency standard. You know, we're not necessarily invited to work with them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but we've done that. We prepared extensive written comments with recommendations about what we believe works, what doesn't work, what is reasonable and manageable, and what would be uh, overly or unnecessarily burdensome because right. it doesn't right. have that return uh, on investment in terms of infection control. Um, and, and we are hearing, you know, that this thing, it, it, it still, still looks like it's going to happen. Uh, you know, Marty Walsh came in as the secretary of labor and put a pause on what was a really fast moving rulemaking mm-hmm. COVID-19 emergency standard. Uh, but we understand that pause was just to, you know, evaluate where, where was the CDC, where were we in dealing with the virus from a, from a vaccination standpoint, and from, you know, sort of a reassessment of some of the controls um, that have been, you know, that we've been experimenting with really right. over the last year and a half. That's really what this has been. And so um, we do think, though, that that was a pause and not a, you know, and not a, a termination of that rulemaking. We expect to see a proposed rule at OMB. I don't know when when this is going to go live on the Internet, but I would say before the end of uh, April, OMB is going to have a rule in their hands. Uh, they're going to spend some time with it, hearing from folks like us. We Good. intend to go in and meet with uh, OIRA and OMB to talk about the rule. Um, but I would I would still anticipate seeing a final COVID emergency rule by mid, mid to late uh, May. Um, and, and hopefully it's one that, that works, uh, but doesn't uh, drive too many employers out of business. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you again. I don't mean to be redundant in saying so, but thank you for doing that. Someone needs to be advocating on behalf of the employers, and you're, you're doing that on a national level. You know, my, my influence is just here locally working with employers, but the vast majority of employers that I, that I work with who – I don't do a lot of healthcare work, frankly, so the very high-risk and high-risk groups I don't have a lot of involvement with, but the medium-risk, you know, the, the food processors in particular here in Nebraska have – at least the ones that I work with have gone to incredible lengths to try to deal with this. They are not interested in having COVID spreading in their facilities. And the cost is just unbelievable. I, I hope you're hearing from some of them and what they've been doing. I don't frankly know if it is sustainable for them to do this indefinitely or to do this continuously. I mean, if we get a, an infectious disease regulation or a COVID-specific emergency temporary standard or something, I don't know how feasible it is for them to sustain this level of intensity indefinitely I, I don't know but as you said hopefully it is a reasonable uh requirement that we can all at least benefit from and the key i think and, and what we're really pushing for is flexibility and i don't mean that to say that you know we want to do less we want to do what works and what what you've seen in every one of these state plans that's implemented a rule already within about a week of implementing their rule the cdc has made some you know groundbreaking change in recommendations, <laughs> right. right? You know, what, what was a close contact change right after, um, you know, Virginia OSHA issued their rule 
uh, how long you needed to quarantine changed right after Cal OSHA implemented their rule. What's required for cleaning versus disinfecting or really the value of that activity at all changed significantly uh, right as federal OSHA was about to issue their rules. So flexibility to keep up with scientific consensus Mm -hmm. is um, I, I think what we really need because, you know, everybody's got, you know, plexiglass barriers everywhere in their, in their meat processing facilities now. And now there's some indication that, you know, maybe that's obstructing airflow mm-hmm. and, and not providing a whole lot of benefit to block an airborne transmissible virus and maybe doing more harm than good. Well, if we've got a regulation that says thou shalt install plexiglass barriers, essentially what Calosha has done, um, you may be faced with a really tough decision of complying with the, the, the latest guidance from CDC and being out of compliance with a regulation or complying with a regulation and maybe not doing the best you can to protect your employees. And that's mm-hmm. not a position that I think uh, any, certainly that the regulators want to put employers in. Right. So think about flexibility with this rule that you're developing. Some, something more like a performance-based type of a regulation rather than prescriptive type of a situation. What about, what are they doing with ventilation? The one that scares me the most is a demand on changes to ventilation that can be incredibly expensive and not necessarily effective. So I, that concerns me. Yeah, that's a, that's a hundred percent. When I talk about, you know, a rule that's hopefully not one that's going to drive employers out of business. That's the provision that we're, that we're thinking about. Mm-hmm. Come in and say, this rule is going to essentially require um, uh, infrastructure changes to your workplace, you know, major capital to change a ventilation system there's not a lot of employers that are going to be able to do that. Right. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Think about you know, ventilation is important. And that's the challenge of, of crafting an effective rule here because it is an airborne transmissible virus and ventilation is key for dealing with that. So I'm hopeful that we see something that talks about evaluating your existing system and making sure that it's operating as designed. Right. Evaluating your existing system to see if it can accommodate any increase, uh, increase in air movement. Uh, you know, think about turning it on earlier than you usually do, leaving it on longer than you otherwise would. Look for opportunities to use natural um, uh, ventilation effectively. And if your existing system can accommodate a higher level of filtration, uh, look for opportunities to do that. But don't put in place something that sets, as you say, a specification standard. Thou shalt have X amount of air right. turnover by hour. Well, the only way I can do that is by installing a new system exactly. that I can't do. So I'm just out of business until. We're past this, uh, past this crisis. Right. And then w- once we've done that and everybody's, you know, dumped all this money into a new system and then we realize, well, maybe the, the transmission is different than we believed originally. I mean, right. it's just, <laughs> exactly. you know, and, and even changing the amount of makeup air that you introduce. I mean, here in Nebraska, where we have to condition air, 12, you know, 11 months out of the year, it's either too hot or too cold. Just right. doing that is incredibly expensive, let alone changing a system to, you know, have a higher capacity. So it's, it's, that is a very daunting prospect. Pretty scary. Um, let me go on. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Um, the new administration, you mentioned uh, Mr. Walsh, um, some of the new, the, the um, nominee, I believe, for the assistant secretary position. Has he actually been nominated, the gentleman from California, Cal OSHA, or? Yeah, I believe his nomination has been sent over. Okay. Uh, to Senate uh, at this point. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it, there's a couple of things that are significant about what's going on at OSHA under the Biden administration. And it's, it's 
the nominees, who they are, and the nominations, period, right? The timing of them and the fact that they they exist. Mm-hmm. Those, uh, to me, what a, what a significantly different prioritization of OSHA this administration is demonstrating. I mean, recall that we have now experienced for the first time in OSHA's history an entire presidential term without a, a Senate-approved head of OSHA. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there was a nominee, obviously, during the Trump administration. Scott Mugno was nominated to run the agency. uh, But with Republican-controlled, you know, Senate and uh, and a Republican in the White House, there just never seemed to be a high enough priority to get his nomination to the floor for a vote. Right. After, um, you know, almost uh, two years he withdrew his name from consideration. (laughs) No other name was, was, was put forward. So that was what we saw for four years during the Trump administration. Now, on day one in office, Biden installed a, a, a principal deputy assistant secretary, mm-hmm. uh, Frederick, and about two and a half months into his administration, announced the nomination of an assistant secretary. So just the approach they're taking to the nominations is, is a pretty stark contrast to what we just experienced. Uh, and then obviously the, the, the makeup of the individuals that are nominated quite different than the folks that were, uh, you know, running the agency um, yes. in the last four years. Uh, both uh, bring to the agency really, really serious um, union credentials. Mm-hmm. Exactly. In particular, 25 years at the United Steelworkers, um, uh, you know, the number two in safety for the steelworkers, a, a, a genuine bona fide safety expert. Uh, worked on so many committees, um, uh, you know, bringing sort of the, the employee side perspective uh, to standard setting committees, uh, very highly regarded both sides of uh, both sides of industry, industry and management uh, knows, uh, knows Jim well, have worked well with, with Jim. Uh, you know, he, he worked on probably a rule that, that, that none of your listeners particularly care about, but it was the beryllium standard, which was one of the only in OSHA's history where union and management worked together to write mm-hmm. the rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim did that with a management representative, one of my partners, actually, um, and uh, and did that very effectively. Um, and then he, he spent a few months, um, a few months, a couple of years uh, after um, leaving the USW before going into OSHA, uh, working as a management side consultant, doing what you're doing. Uh, with uh, ORC, HSC, ultimately with National Safety uh, uh, Council um, uh, that, that acquired ORC, HSC or merged with them. Um, and so I think he brings a really, a really unique perspective, having been on both, uh, you know, representing unions and working with employers. Um, I, I think he's a great pick for the job. Terrific. And then Parker just nominated for the top job at OSHA. Um, you know, s- similar background. He started off as a union lawyer. Uh, um, uh, f- directly with a union and then with a law firm representing uh, union side interests, ended up in the Obama-Biden administration at MSHA. MSHA right, yeah. Then uh, with uh, WorkSafe, um, which is uh, like a public citizen, you know, worker advocacy group, ultimately running Cal OSHA for the last uh, couple of years. And, you know, it's a big deal, right? This is the second, you know, top official in California that Biden has brought into his labor department. Julie Sue, who is the labor secretary right. in California is Biden's deputy um, labor uh, secretary. And now Doug Parker to run OSHA. 
Um, you know, I, that's depending on your perspective, um, a good or a bad thing to bring more of California into Washington, D.C., we'll, we'll have to see. Without question. But you have some relationship with some of these folks, it sounds like, or at least you're familiar with them. And they certainly have credentials, yeah. you know, again, whether it's the, the way we would like to see it go. You know, as an outreach guy, as a compliance assistance guy, I was always more in favor of uh, the kinder, gentler approach, a little bit more mm-hmm. of an educational approach. But, you know, the enforcement piece obviously has its place. Um, I'm always conflicted by this because as a, as a consultant, you know, things could not be any better than loading up the agency with people who uh, believe in sort of a heavy-handed enforcement approach. But, you know, just as a safety <laughs> practitioner, you know, I just want, you know, everyone to be safe at work and just, you know, to um, have all the information they need to make good decisions. And so I get a little conflicted at times. You know, my wife seems to like the, the way things are going, this, at least this direction from a, from a consulting standpoint. So we'll see. But um, sure. I will, I, I'm going to be very busy. Yeah, I, yeah. I know it inevitably, um, much like you, uh, you know, after an OSHA interaction and you know with uh, you know settlements and different stipulations and challenges you know that often leads a lot of work to me which is fine I'm more than happy to try to help but it, but it is um, I don't know I have a little bit of a, a conflict with some of those things as I read those you know those citation packages I'm like what you know I mean so we'll see it, it will be interesting <laughs> I do think this will be, uh, you know, uh, lawyers and consultants. Oh, my God. And, uh, <laughs> You're going to have to add offices and personnel here very quickly, it sounds like. That's right. Are you bringing on some new folks? Are you training some new people? Are there we some are, good attorneys in there? Uh, and, and, you know, as, as horrible as the last, uh, you know, 14, 15 months have been uh, in so many ways, you know, our, our, our firm is, uh, is thriving, right? I mean, people Good. need that help as they I'm do. sure on the consulting side, you know, we're writing COVID-19 infection control plans. We're helping mm-hmm. with hazard assessments. We're obviously helping to manage, um, inspections, enforcement, uh, and, and litigation around uh, COVID-19 issues. So we have grown considerably during the pandemic, which is, uh, seems backwards, but yeah, we, we've added, added quite a few lawyers, quite a few staff, and we're, we're looking for um, to to grow more, especially out in California, yeah. where you know Doug under Doug Parker's leadership. <laughs> right. should, yes, of there course. Been a tremendous amount of work for uh, for OSHA defense lawyers, yeah. and we may maybe expect that model to translate over to the uh, Fed OSHA side coming soon as well. It will be interesting to see. Let me let me ask you a little bit about just for the sake of the audience, the listeners. Can you talk a little bit about um, from an OSHA inspection perspective some of the things that you see that employers are, are perhaps doing uh, poorly, they don't do well, maybe the preparation piece or even dealing with the inspection. Um, just in general, again, I don't, I don't want you to go into too great a detail. I know that you do presentations on this all the time, but just from your perspective, what, what, are, the, what are employers doing typically that they could do better at with these interactions? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is is prepare, prepare for an OSHA inspection, right? This is, you know, it, it, you know, people talk about the data that, you know, OSHA is a pretty small agency, pretty small budget agency, and then you've heard this data that it's it would take like 125 years for OSHA to get to every workplace in the country, and and you know that may be true, but you know, depending on your industry, you're much more likely to see them than in other industries. Exactly. But prepare for what what's going to happen when they come knock on the door. 
And it's easy to do that, right? I mean, OSHA has a lot of great resources on their website, these directives for their national and local emphasis programs, their field operations manual, things like that. And we've got similar resources, you know, an inspection checklist. Take that checklist, take uh, the directive for an emphasis program that you know covers your workplace and do a mock inspection, right? They, they tell you exactly what they're gonna do. Here's the information we're gonna collect. Here's the types of things we're gonna ask employees when we do interviews. Here's the standards that we're evaluating your workplace against and do a mock inspection. You know, bring in, bring you in. Let's bring in Doug to do a mock inspection. You used to do a lot of those inspections mm-hmm. and oversee a lot of those uh, citation packages. That's gonna be a great tool so that you are not back on your heels from the moment OSHA walks in the door. You know what that's going to look like. You know what information they're going to ask for. You're going to be prepared to put your best foot forward. I mean, so much of the inspection process is about presenting your workplace, presenting your safety program in the best possible light. Because, you know, an inspector is a person, right? And they're going to be impacted by the impressions that you make. And that first impression is really important um, in how they are going to perceive your workplace and your safety program. That's the really other big true. component of the inspection is managing the flow of information. Mm-hmm. It's not about hiding things under the rug. It's about how it's presented to OSHA, when it's presented to OSHA, and, um, and the light in which it is presented to OSHA. And the more you can prepare up front for that, the better off you're going to be. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I see employers do wrong, or that they could do better, I guess I should say, uh, is once the inspection starts, think about the competing interests that OSHA have or OSHA has to get past the opening conference as quickly as possible, right? They know that OSHA's here, OSHA's here, you know, the call <laughs> right. back to the back of the house. And, you know, if somebody wasn't wearing their protective eyewear, they're putting it on. Mm-hmm. And OSHA wants to go see that before too much changes. Well, you know, you've got an interest to make sure, again, that your workplace is presented in the best possible light. And so OSHA wants... The, the two minute opening conference, you want the one hour. opening right. conference. Exactly. Uh, and, and it's not, it's not a game, right. And it's not about, you know, trying to get things changed while you're talking to OSHA to me. And I tell this to people all the time, the opening conference is in my opinion, the most important step in the OSHA process. Agreed. It is lost opportunity to, to maybe find out that OSHA is there for the wrong reason. And maybe they don't need to be there at all. And this happens more often than you realize. The OSHA shows up to do an emphasis program inspection at a workplace that's not covered by the emphasis program. Mm -hmm. It's the only basis that OSHA has to be there. And if you're not covered by that program, they don't have any basis to be there. And, you know, and people are afraid to say no to OSHA. But, you know, if if they don't have a justification to be there, you do it politely, you do it respectfully, and you say, hey, listen, it looks like this program covers these 10 NAICS codes, mm-hmm. here's our NAICS code. We don't appear to be covered. Let's explain to me why this inspection is happening. Exactly. A chance to maybe avoid an inspection, period. But then even if an inspection is going to happen, it's your last chance to define the scope of the inspection. And OSHA, you know, you give them an inch, they take a mile. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so you don't have to give them uh, that inch, right? If they're there to do an incident inspection about a forklift incident, there's not really a need for them to go into your maintenance shop. There's not a need for them to go out and evaluate your bagging and packaging operation. They need to go and look at where the incident occurred, evaluate your forklifts. I mean, I, I know one employer one time that said, oh, you, you know, you, you heard that there, there was a complaint about an unsafe condition with my forklift. 
come back out here to the parking lot with me and I'm going to ride the forklift out to you. Um, absolutely. And you're allowed to do that. <laughs> Perfectly legitimate. Yeah. I, I, I'm not above recommending that to my uh, clients. Most right. definitely. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. You know, the opening conference is often very, um, on the part of the employer, they're often ill-prepared, they're distracted, you know, now all of a sudden they're thinking about, oh my God, I've got to pick my daughter up from class and I've got, you know, what's this going to cost? And they're not necessarily focusing on the content of that opening conference from, you know, as the uh, compliance officer describes it. And that is really a mistake because as you said, and as you have discussed in some of the literature of yours I've read, you know, it, it is an opportunity for a negotiation of sorts, you know, exactly. what we're going to go look at. I, I have two examples for you. Recently, one of my clients had a visit from uh, one of the new compliance officers, which is just the worst, you know, a new compliance. There's nothing worse than a new compliance officer who's just been pushed out of the nest and they're on their own and they are just a disaster waiting to happen. But this young man, uh, the, the compliance officer arrived, you know, gave some semblance of an opening conference and started making the inspection and then the, the, the client called us after that and said, I'm not sure exactly what's going on here. And so, we, you know, we, um, we kind of intervened a little bit too late, but as it turned out, it was a site-specific targeting inspection. Uh, it was triggered by the SST, and it was at the wrong location, and so the inspection wasn't valid. So, you know, once we clarified that with the area office, the assistant area director, you know, and um, they realized they were in the wrong place, they stopped. And withdrew, but um, had they not even questioned it, it, it would have happened, and they would have received citations. Yeah, and you know, and and, and probably they were within an hour of something called uh, plain view. <laughs> exactly. Once, once, a, <laughs> once you see something in plain view from a place they're allowed to be, and they're allowed to be there because you let them be there, it no longer matters whether they were supposed to be in that location to begin with. And that's right. kind of my point is. You know, be be respectful and be courteous, but assert your rights mm -hmm. and 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 don't be overly deferential because they make mistakes. Well, um, absolutely. And, and, and often it's not intended that they're extending their scope beyond where it should be, or they're in the wrong place, uh, or you know, even if they're in the right place, they want to do more than maybe their uh, uh, their 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 scope ought to be. If it's an employee complaint, make sure you ask to see a copy of the complaint. And make sure you negotiate with OSHA that this is the scope of the inspection. This and is what we're going to look at. Yeah. Them on that scope. It's your job to keep them focused on that scope because they they'd like to see more, they'd like to do more, they'd like to cite more, and that's where you know you're leading the co-show. You're not following the co-show. Right. You're, um, you're you know you you know we there, there's that idea that you accompany the co-show, and I think that's the wrong word. I say you're leading the co-show. That's exactly you're right. This one particular area. Uh, that is the subject of the complaint. I'm going to pick how we get there and I'm going to take you there. Um, and we're going to stay focused on that one particular issue. That's right. I have such a funny story. When I was a compliance officer, you know, we have a lot of packing houses in the area here and they are mm -hmm. huge and they are just oddly configured, these really confusing, monstrous locations. And I can remember visiting one of our packing houses whose name shall remain, you know, unspoken. And they, we, we were doing a wall-to-wall, -wall, a comprehensive inspection. And they, so they led me through, and we were there for a number of hours. Um, I, I had a few citations, of course, as you would expect. And, and, and the, the activity was over. And I, they, they retained me as a consultant years later. 
And I went into the facility, and we're walking through doing a kind of a comprehensive walk around. And I'm saying, I don't remember this when I was here last time. And like, oh, well, we might have bypassed this, or we might not have gone into this room. I had no idea where we were. I was lost the entire time. And I probably saw, I probably walked around in a circle for about four hours and didn't even realize it. And, um, but, just as you said, they were leading me. I wasn't actually right. leading, and I was happy to be led because I was lost and terrified, you know, so. Yeah, you have so much more control over, you know, how that inspection goes than I think it, than, than employers realize, and and I think they should assert that uh, I think control. They, I want to ask you one thing. You, you touched on this, expanding the scope based on this plain view hazard issue. <laughs> as part of every inspection that I ever conducted, and, and as my guys did when I was in, in that position, um, they do describe the fact that they, they have an obligation to address any plain view hazards that they may see during the course of this activity. And usually, you know, we're in a limited scope inspection. We're going from A to B to go look at a particular piece of equipment or a, an issue. But that plain view thing um, arises. Can you talk a little bit about what that actually includes? Because there are a number of circumstances where the compliance officer just looks over and sees a piece of equipment oh, I see you've got a press over there, you've got a grinder, I'm going to go look at that, which I don't necessarily believe falls under that plain view doctrine. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you're exactly right, Doug. I mean, the, the concept of plain view, it, the whole thing falls under the framework of the Fourth Amendment, right? The idea mm-hmm. is that, that OSHA is subject to, uh, you know, our constitutional limitations on uh, reasonable searches and seizures. Uh, I, I would say almost just like the police, not quite, because the the standard for administrative probable cause is lower than for criminal probable cause, but they're still limited to investigating um, uh, hazards where there is a probable cause that a hazard will be present. And the concept of plain view is that, you know, OSHA's scope of what is probable cause is defined either by an incident, an employee complaint, or one of these programs, an, an emphasis program that defines what there's probable cause for this type of hazard in this industry. Plain view says, if I observe either a condition uh, or a practice that there is a probable cause that it represents a violation of an OSHA standard or it represents an unsafe condition, then I'm allowed to look at it. That creates probable cause for me to explore that more. It is not enough to say, oh, I didn't realize you had forklifts I'm, that, I, I see a forklift in plain view, so I'm going to go expand my inspection into forklift operations. Well, no, what you need to see is, you know, a forklift that's being operated unsafely. Right, right. That is, I can see that there's not a fire extinguisher mounted on that forklift. So now I have probable cause to dig into that more. And and you certainly see OSHA try to do exactly what you say oh, I didn't realize that you had, you know, conveyor mm-hmm. system in this facility. I'm going to go look at your guarding and lockout on the right. conveyors. No, they need to see some reason to expand. And whenever I hear that, you know, we're in the middle of a walk around and the inspector says, oh, I, I want to take a look at your forklift operations now. <laughs> Bring me your forklift training. And I say, you know what, Let, let's go back to the conference room where we had the opening conference and let's have a conversation about that because I'm not sure I understand why this inspection about a complaint about heat uh, or whatever it is, um, is being expanded to focus on forklifts now. Explain it to me. And I don't say no right away. Right. I give them an opportunity to explain it. And then I push back if necessary to say, the fact that we have forklifts is not probable cause that there's a violation 
related to forklifts. And if you need to check in with your area office about whether that's a proper expansion of a uh, of an inspection, you know, check in with them. And I'm happy to get on that call as well and mm-hmm. talk to the area director. And you, you push back if you need to. And that's, uh, you know, that's how that comes up from time to time. That, that's really good advice. And, and I have recommended uh, to, and I think probably based on something I've heard you say in the past, but, you know, when things are getting a little bit questionable, maybe that we're going a direction, the OSHA person is t- leading us a direction that maybe was not described in the opening conference. Mm-hmm. And you say, let's, hey, let's take a minute and let's just talk about this. We're not, we're not actually... Um, denying at that point, we're not requesting a warrant at that point, but clarification is absolutely appropriate, at, at, and you can you can ask them for that clarification. That that's yeah, a good course and of I, action. And I, like, and I like to leave. You know, let's leave the area mm-hmm. where we're getting a little rocky, and let's go sit down right where we had the opening conference because it sounds like you know we're, we're going a different direction than we talked about. Let's go back and sit down and talk about that. So I understand it, or I've got questions about it. Right. Be respectful and you be courteous, uh, but be assertive if you need to be. That's interesting. I, you know, I um, I have a client in town here that called me one. They were they were um, they had an OSHA inspector show up. This has been a few years ago, and um, the inspector was a good friend of mine. And so I, I I was probably an hour out. You know, I wasn't immediately available, and so um, I got on the phone with the compliance officer and, you know, just asked what, you know, what the scope of the, what the purpose of the inspection was, what they were doing, and he told me that they were doing an amputation inspection, and OSHA's amputation local emphasis program lists a number of pieces of equipment that they are concerned about, Mm -hmm. and so when I arrived, we sat down and we proceeded with, you know, the rest of the opening conference, and we went through that list of, I think, maybe 14 pieces of equipment, and the company actually, you know, self-identified two. We have this, and we have this. We don't have the other. You know, they were kind of an assembly facility. They didn't have presses, and they didn't have brakes and shears and things, and mm-hmm. so, but we do have a, you know, we have a drill press, and we have a grinder. They both happen to be in the maintenance shop, and so... Mm-hmm. We agreed that we would limit the scope to the maintenance shop where that equipment was rather than walk through the whole facility. We yeah. did we did the forklift thing where, you know, as part of that inspection, he wanted to look at the forklifts. That's kind of, you know, Omaha has that as kind of a routine protocol. I'm not sure that's yeah. legally appropriate or not, but they asked for that. And so they brought the forklift over to the maintenance shop and he looked at one and, you know, so it went yeah. relatively smoothly, you know, but... Um, once yeah. you turn them loose and just say, hey, go look around and see if you can find it, you're doomed, I think. Yeah, that's right. And I'll tell you one other thing that you said there that is a really important part of my advice to uh, to my clients is if OSHA shows up and the right person is not there, mm-hmm. right? The person that you as the employer intend always to be your OSHA inspection uh, representative, the person that you want to be your principal point of contact with OSHA is not present. And maybe it's, you know, the plant manager who's not there at that moment, or maybe it's your corporate safety director who's never there. You're not, not never mm-hmm. there, but is not stationed there and has to travel to get there. You can ask OSHA to wait. And OSHA has, you know, clear um, uh, guidance in its own field operations manual, that the employer has a right to its chosen inspection representative. And if that person's not present, then OSHA will wait without a warrant, um, should wait a reasonable amount of time for that person to be present. Now, OSHA says a reasonable amount of time is an hour or two. Eric says a reasonable amount of time is a reasonable amount of time. Reasonable mm-hmm. is, it depends on the circumstances. Mm-hmm. My guy, and if you're not doing it for a surreptitious reason, 
uh, my corporate safety director is four hours away, four hours is reasonable, or my plant manager is, you know, at the hospital that moment for, you know, a procedure, then reasonable is the next day. Mm-hmm. I'd have a little bit of a fight with OSHA about that, but frankly, it's probably worth it to have your best person there for the inspection, the person that can speak OSHA's language, the person that knows your safety program best, the person that has, you know, thought about inspection strategy before. And it's worth it in most instances, in my opinion, to maybe push back on OSHA to wait for the right person to be present. And we've done some things to be creative, to kind of keep OSHA happy, to say, all right, listen, I'm sure you're going to want some records. How about we we bring in our 300 logs and you can start looking at our 300 logs while you wait for the corporate safety manager to be present. Or we can do an opening conference over the telephone while we're traveling there, but we're not going to start the walk around until Doug is able to be present on site. That's an important right to exercise when, uh, when those circumstances come up. That's really interesting. I, I know that, you know, as on the inside of OSHA, we always talk about waiting up to an hour, you know, but I, I have, and again, I'm probably just stealing things that I've heard from you in the past, but <laughs> I've made that same recommendation where, you know, if, if you cannot get that team assembled in that hour, in that timely fashion, and it's a legitimate reason, you know, you're not just, as you said, just putting them off or just, you know, manipulating them. Just let them know that and just say, look, hey, I can have everybody here tomorrow morning and make that offer. Rather than a, just a hard denial, just negotiate right. that as well. And I, I can tell you in my own experience, more often than not, that was acceptable. Yeah. The, the compliance officer doesn't necessarily have the authority to say, I'm going to wait until tomorrow, but they call back to the office and the boss is sitting there going, holy shit, I got to send you back tomorrow or whatever. Just, yeah, we'll wait, you know, wait, for, wait till tomorrow, go do something else and, and we'll make that happen. And normally, in my experience, they're willing to do that. Not always. Yeah, I mean, remember the, the choice they're facing is I got to write up a bunch of paperwork, go exactly. into work, you know, get a warrant. And even if I follow that process, it's probably going to take four or five days before I'm back at the workplace. Instead, we can be back in there with express consent mm-hmm. tomorrow or later this afternoon right. or whatever it is. And then, you know, meanwhile, if you do have your folks checking for low hanging fruit yeah. <laughs> in the meantime, that's not a bad practice. As you either. should, as you definitely should. You, you, can't, you can't change things that are systemic problems, but you can right. certainly do the low hanging fruit. And as you should, I think... You know, people always kind of cringe when I would say that, you know, oh, my God, that sounds like, you know, dirty or, or wrong or, you know. But, no, absolutely, you need to make that pass. You need to make sure that everybody's aware that OSHA's on site. That I used to even suggest, man, if you're doing things that are somewhat questionable, just stop doing them. I'm not suggesting that you all get in your cars and leave like they did in the old days when I first started. But you don't have to be you know, working at elevation when they come through, you can be sorting materials or sweeping or whatever. You don't have yeah. to do all that stuff, you and, know? And there's very legitimate reasons for that, right? I mean, how many times have you seen employees when OSHA's looking over their shoulders make mistakes that they would never otherwise Oh, of course. Make? It's very nerve-wracking. Exactly. So do you want employees doing the most hazardous task that they would otherwise be doing with OSHA looking over their shoulder? Not to hide the task, but from a safety standpoint. I mean, that's another... Absolutely. Uh, And it does add a layer of stress that wouldn't otherwise be there. And people just don't necessarily respond well to that stress of being watched by some regulator. I I do have a question, and this is actually something I'm not comfortable that I know really well. When when OSHA does obtain uh, an administrative search warrant, 
Mm-hmm. Does that automatically allow them to expand the scope from the original? I mean, for example, if they came up on a list uh, from an, for an LEP, a, a limited scope mm-hmm. inspection, and for whatever reason, the employer denies them entry. Maybe they can't assemble their team, and they're being relatively hard about that. So they deny entry. OSHA comes back with a warrant. Can they expand the scope? So they shouldn't, right? The whole idea of the warrant is you have to go and justify to the court that I have probable cause. And if the probable cause was this local emphasis program or national emphasis program, the scope of the inspection ought to be limited to whatever was defined by the directive for that emphasis program. Now that's not to say that they don't try, right? They don't go into district court and say, you know, this employer is being a real jerk and I want to get them. So give me a warrant that's wall to wall. Mm -hmm. You know, judges are very deferential to OSHA in that circumstance. And that process is called ex parte. That just means it's behind the employer's back, right? The employer doesn't get to be there to say, judge, this is unreasonable. Here's the way the scope ought to be. So they could issue a warrant that is broader than it's supposed to be. And, you know, that that's when, you know, call me and I'll take a look at that warrant and we'll make a decision about whether it makes sense to consent to negotiate, even though the warrant may say you get to do X, Y, and Z, you can still negotiate with OSHA over the scope. And if they're not being reasonable about it, you can push back and say, we think this warrant is unlawful. We think the warrant is, uh, it it does not reflect the proper scope of what there is probable cause to inspect. And we're going to go in and move to quash the warrant, or we're just going to oppose certain inspection activities. And OSHA has to decide whether they're going to go try to enforce that aspect of the warrant. And okay. if they go back into district court to enforce the warrant, then the employer has an opportunity to defend themselves and come into the judge and say, judge, the warrant says it's a wall-to-wall inspection, but they were there because of an employee complaint about this one machine. And those two things are not compatible. This is what the scope of the warrant ought to have been. Mm-hmm. And we expressed to OSHA that we were happy to consent to an inspection about that one thing and you need to rewrite this warrant or rescind this warrant or whatever. Um, and, you know, when you get an opportunity to be before the judge, if you're if you're right and you're being reasonable and OSHA's not being reasonable, you've got an opportunity to tailor that. Uh, but again, okay. I think the better approach is going to be ne- to negotiate with OSHA. Negotiate. Absolutely. Look, we, we never we were never denying entry. We were just saying, come back when Doug could be here. Right. Right. Now. So let's do the inspection that you intended to do from the start. Well, that, that, that is such an interesting comment because I think, as you said, the, the tenor of this negotiation is really critical. Right. If you're being a dick and you're, you know, I had people like just say some incredibly unpleasant things to me when I was an ocean inspector. You know, they would behave in, you know, in kind of erratic, violent fashion. I had a guy spit on me one time, yes. you know, I mean, just all sorts. And, and those things don't, those are not good negotiation strategies, in my opinion. No. When you're, you know, they usually result in the, you know, the full benefit of all my training, you know, at that point. But it does make a difference when you're, when you're explaining, look, we want to be cooperative. We are more than happy to have you in here, but it is our policy to have these certain people present. And that's a hard thing to argue with from an OSHA perspective, you know? Yeah, and, and you know, the law prohibits OSHA from retaliating against an employer for exercising the employer's rights. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say it doesn't happen, right? Mm -hmm. And you probably have stories about that too, where, you know, I might've gone easier on the employer, but for, you know, all the roadblocks they threw up in the inspection. But if those roadblocks are legal, you know, the employer's Mm -hmm. rights, they're exercising their rights in a proper fashion to ask for a warrant, to ask for a subpoena, to participate in management interviews, 
Um, uh, you know, the OSHA is not supposed to retaliate and treat you any differently than the employer who just says, come on in, you know, lift up my skirt, you know, do, right. see what you need to see. Um, and, and I have found that most area offices, most compliance officers, you know, they, they may be a little annoyed. Oh, I got to fill out some extra paperwork here, but I think they do their job the same regardless. And they understand if the employer is being respectful, uh, but asserting their rights, Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it tends to be better for you rather than worse. I would agree. That is interesting, though. And again, those are typically the seasoned compliance officers who understand this check and balance of the system. The new guys get a little bit, you know, they just want so desperately to be um, praised or, in, you know. And how in, dare in, you challenge my authority? Exactly. They get a little, the new guys bother me, not, not bother me, they 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 change things a little bit. So when, when one of my clients calls and says, I've got an OSHA person here, you know, I typically ask, you know, who it is and let, let me speak to them for a moment if I'm not able to be there right away, just so I can talk to them, find out who it is. If it's one of the guys I know, I know that the client is going to be treated fairly. If it's a new person, I just want to know what, you know, what the intention is. Um, but that that does change things a little bit. You know, that lack of experience sometimes makes things a little bit more difficult. Yeah, I'll tell you what, though, that phone call to you at the very start of an inspection is going to return dividends in like 98% of, of, of inspections. And that's why for, for most of my clients, we have what's called, you know, an OSHA inspection protocol. And it's, you know, it's a half a page document. Basically the main thrust of it is if OSHA shows up for any reason, call this person, mm-hmm. that person's not available, call this person, whether mm-hmm. it's the corporate safety director, whether it's the general counsel, whether it's us as their outside, you know, your longtime outside OSHA counsel, whether it's a consultant like you, let let somebody who has a ton of experience with OSHA inspections deal with that first interaction with OSHA. Mm-hmm. That's going to make a huge difference in almost every case. That's why you know I emphasize that opening conference is critical. It is that, right. People involved in that is critical. Do you do you go on retainer? I mean, so that. If you're not actively working on a case for a client, but just so that you can be available to give that type of guidance, do you guys have a retainer system or how do you guys do that? Yeah, I mean, we, we you know, not so much a paid retainer situation, but we are engaged. And when we, when we execute a new engagement with a client, we basically set it up that, you know, we are engaged for probably a particular matter the first time we're working with somebody. Mm-hmm. But we, are, we are here as your outside OSHA counsel for similar, uh, you know, engagements in the future. So we don't need to jump through any hoops for the next go round. And they just know that we're available to them. Yeah. And that's one of, the, one of the things about our practice is, uh, you know, we're a deep bench of OSHA specialists. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's not like if Eric's on vacation, you know, my clients are screwed. Right. <laughs> right. Plus you don't take vacation, man. <laughs> right. Well, you I don't, don't get I, vacation. I'm on phone anyway. But, <laughs> right. we, um, but we, uh, we've got a team available and, and a team available spread around the country, you know, and, and, and these days it's not that important that we are there in person. Absolutely. Inspections like it used to be. You can do opening conferences just like this. Exactly. But there are occasions, right. Where there's the catastrophe, mm-hmm. uh, significant fatality event. Um, you know, uh, the, you know, there are times where it makes sense to have your attorney present with you on site and we're available to do that. Right. We've yeah. got go bags in our offices. Now our offices are our homes. Mm-hmm temporarily uh but you know being in california all over the midwest and all along the east coast we can be anywhere in a few hours and there are times where that's necessary but mostly get us on the phone we'll get the inspection off to the right start helping with the opening conference 
And then when management interviews come along, we'll prepare witnesses for that and participate in those interviews and, uh, and go from there. That's really important. And, and I'm going to, you know, it's kind of in, in parting, we've rolled up on this hour so quickly. I've got hundreds of questions bouncing around in my head. Maybe we'll, we'll have to do this again in six months, but I, I would love to recommend that everybody have an, a qualified OSHA attorney on that call list. Yep. Um, it's, it's so important and I, and I'm happy to be on that list or I know other consul- you know, they're happy to be on that list, but having your attorney on that list and, and I mean a qualified OSHA attorney, I, I remember doing informal conferences with your like, uh, accountant attorney. They would yes. bring these guys, these clowns in and they the, were just the OSHA, the OSHA dabblers. We call the them. dabblers. They were more, they were so much more harm than good. Yeah. Make sure that you're using someone who knows this OSHA law and understands it, who practices this all the time. I actually enjoyed when they would bring those other attorneys in and they would make some, you know, half-ass reference to some OSHA regulation or, you know, some requirement or something. And I just shake my head and say, you're going to have to contest it because these are sticking, you know. They, they could never make a reasonable argument in defense for the employer. So, Get a good OSHA attorney. Get their name on your call list. And as you said, if you do, if you do have a critical issue, a, some type of a catastrophic issue, a serious injury or fatality, God forbid, um, that's the first call that you need to make other than 911. You know, people call me and say, Doug, we had a fatality. I need you. And I'm like, have you called your attorney yet? And um, if not, let me give you the number of a good attorney and let's get that on underway. And I'm happy to help, but that's the first call that you need to make after you've address the immediate issue that's, that's really right. critical and now with the potential for criminal consequences um, that's right for, the for individual managers uh, you got to be careful in those circumstances you do you do eric man this has been I, i'm taking notes i've learned again i've learned more than i learned <laughs> in 20 years at osha every time we talk i appreciate it i know the audience is going to love this information i do hope we can do it again at some point um, and if I'd it's okay to. with you, I'm going to put your information, you know, on the notes that go out with the podcast so they can get out, get a hold of you or one of your associates because everybody needs to have uh, someone like you on that phone list, man. So, Well, I appreciate the invitation. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, buddy. Keep up the good fight. Thank you for advocating for us. We appreciate it. And thanks for sending out that great information. Um, are, do you have a weekend in plan? Do you have something fun in store for the weekend, hopefully? Do you get yeah, days I, off? I've a lot of work to do. And, <laughs> I'm sure you do. Uh, and a lot of baseball with my boys. Oh, good for you. That's a perfect way to spend it. Um, Very good. That sounds good. Thank you, Eric. Have a great weekend. I hope we'll talk soon. And uh, thanks for listening, guys. Thanks again to all those sponsors. I appreciate it, fellas. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. A Huda Media Production.